Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call, did write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of the fear-monger-in-chief to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. But before we get to the logical fallacy of the week, however, we have to introduce our guest. Yay, drum roll. He's the co-host of Skeptics with a K and the host of Be Reasonable. He's the co-founder of the Merseyside Skeptic Society and the QED Conference. And he's the project director of the Good Thinking Society. It's Michael Marshall. Marsh, welcome to Fallacious Trump. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. I think this is my first uh, specifically and overtly trump theme podcast uh, recording, although I think these days uh, pretty much every podcast or every conversation you have is uh, at least implicitly uh, Trump-themed. So it's, it's <laughs> nice to put that kind of uh, implicit bias right out there up front. <laughs> Excellent. And you've got the, the honour of being actually the first guest that we've had on for the whole show. Yeah. So that's very cool for us as, as well. Great. And we're very honoured to have you here. I'm, I'm here for the duration. <laughs> if only we could not say the same about Trump. Oh, no, I did it already. <laughs> uh, there's a reasonable chance he's not there for the duration. It's still not a non-zero chance that he's not going to make the duration. <laughs> That's true. I've got all my fingers and everything crossed. So the logical fallacy we're looking at this week is argument from ignorance, also known as argumentum ad ignorantium. And negative proof, or as I've been doing the shortcuts, arg from ig. <laughs> so the argument from ignorance is basically a way of claiming something is true based on information that you don't have. So it's either based on um, not being able to prove the opposite is true, mm -hmm. or just not really knowing what the situation is, and therefore making the claim that therefore your theory is correct, because you can't, that nobody knows what it is, so I'm mm -hmm. right. Right. So with Trump, you might think, because he is pretty ignorant about quite a lot of things, that this, this comes up a lot. And he does like to, to, to make these kinds of claims. He tweeted back in November 2016. He said, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Obviously, that was based on, on no actual information, no evidence. And no. Uh, CNN's senior White House correspondent, Jeff Zeleny, called this claim blatant and baseless and pointed out that Trump has offered no evidence to back it up. In response, Trump fired back, started tweeting about CNN and fake news. And during this tweet storm, he retweeted a 16-year-old from California who had tweeted this at Zeleny. He said, pathetic, you have no sufficient evidence that Donald Trump did not suffer from voter fraud. Shame. Bad reporter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because uh, unless you go through individually every single one of the votes that uh, were cast in the election and prove they weren't fraudulent, uh, you can't say that uh, that he didn't uh, suffer terribly from voter fraud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And unless you can prove that, then then he was definitely the victim of voter fraud and he definitely would have won millions more votes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and that, so there's two kind of two bits there. There's the millions of people. It's a bit like saying, well, if only we'd score more goals, we would have won. <laughs> That's all there was. But then he puts the blame to the non-scoring of goals to some other insubstantiated thing. So you've got kind of two things, the millions of people and then that they've voted illegally. And we've kind of talked about it on previous episodes that 
there was a big investigation and they did go through these millions of fraudulent votes and found that they weren't fraudulent and there were very many very, very fewer. Yeah, very, all the investigations mm, came yeah. up with something like 16 people who'd voted twice <laughs> or something like that. It was, it was, yeah, yeah. It was insane. Uh, I, th- I think they also found out, uh, although there wasn't actually a fraudulent vote cast as a result of this, but uh, there were people who were registered in two different states and therefore could have potentially voted in two different states. Uh, and one of the people, I believe, was Ivanka Trump, who was uh, registered to vote <laughs> in, uh, in two different states. So also Steve Bannon. That's not an ideal uh, ideal look for him in his, uh, in his claims that uh, the people who were voting illegally were voting for Hillary and, and that caused him to lose the uh, the popular vote. Yeah. So that's an example of a, a quite common thing with the argument from ignorance, which is that it, it overlaps a bit with another fallacy called shifting the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. So where someone is making a claim, if uh, the, especially the more outrageous the claim is, the more incumbent it is on them to, uh, to provide evidence to back up mm-hmm. the claim. And the claim here, the outrageous claim that's being made, is that there were millions of illegal votes, and it's Trump that's making that. So it's the, the burden of proof is on him to back that up. Just saying, you can't prove I didn't suffer from massive voter fraud isn't enough. To say that he did. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So another example is uh, when we've talked before about uh, his claim that Ted Cruz's father Mm. knew and worked with Lee Harvey Oswald. And previously, we've seen how he backed that up by claiming that it was a a major publication that talked about this when it was the National Enquirer. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which Trump would consider to be a, na- a major publication, given that yeah. uh, National Enquirer is, is so close to Trump, uh, Trump's heart and Trump's uh, bed history. Yeah, absolutely. But when he was actually questioned on this, he he backed it up basically, or, or at mm. least justified the fact that he claimed it by saying this. Well, I was, I was referring to a picture that was uh, reported and in a magazine, and I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. So he's using yeah. the fact that this claim wasn't denied to say that it's probably true. Yeah, yeah, or at least it's worth uh, repeating, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That the, There's some justification for him to claim it's true, at least. Now, even if he was right that it hadn't been denied, <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't make it true. Yeah. In, but in fact... As usual, he's not right. Two weeks before he claimed that, the Cruz campaign uh, said this story is false. That's not Raphael in the picture. Cruz himself said this is nuts. This is not a reasonable position. And Raphael Cruz said uh, it's ludicrous. He was never in New Orleans at that time. So it had been denied repeatedly. Yeah, three times. But even if it hadn't, that, that the important thing is yeah. just not denying it doesn't make a difference. The the lack of denial doesn't matter, yeah. It's a very sort of problematic tactic to even uh, take uh, as mm. someone who's uh, you know putting forward arguments because it does obviously, if we were to accept that this is a, a perfectly rational way of, uh, of finding out truth is to uh, effectively throw mud at the wall and, and see which bit uh, doesn't get rubbed mm. off. Mm. Uh, it does mean that anything you therefore say about Donald Trump and he doesn't explicitly deny uh, must therefore be true. Now, yep. that means you could basically spend the next hour of this podcast saying anything you like about Donald Trump. And unless he listens to this show and one by one goes through all of the claims and rebuts them uh, externally, we know for a fact they're true. So that's something you may want to think about at, at some point, <laughs> that you could really uncover some truths, some Donald, Donald Truth, uh, Trump-style capital T truths uh, on this on this very show. Yeah, actually, uh, Trump was on Fox News recently and Janine Pirro asked him if he was a Russian asset because that had, that question had been raised. Um, and he didn't explicitly deny it. He said that's really very insulting and a ridiculous thing to say, but he didn't say he wasn't. So technically. 
he that must be. Means yeah, he is. that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, yeah. Well, that's that kind of um, journalistic tactic to say, well, he neither confirmed nor denied, which actually is shortcut yeah. for he did it. Well, it's, it's sort of tricky because obviously from a, a political standpoint, uh, one of the reasons why you uh, wouldn't deny something is uh, you don't want to be the, you don't want to be, have to be Ted Cruz. I mean, no, no one wants to be Ted Cruz anyway, but you don't want to specifically <laughs> be Ted Cruz to have to stand there and say, by the way, I am not the Zodiac killer uh, because you're, you're yeah. then engaging with uh, with the the smears and engaging with the, the ridiculousness of it and it lowers you to the level of the person who's throwing that mud. So uh, from a political point of view, a lack of denial uh, says obviously absolutely nothing, but even from a logical standpoint, it certainly doesn't make the initial uh, the initial claim true. And now is the time I think for Marx's British politics corner. Following on from that idea that you can implicate people with the fact that there is no evidence not to implicate them. Good old Boris, back in the heady days of when he was the foreign secretary, was on Robert Pesson's show. On the 12th of March 2017. And there was, I think, the whole stuff about Russian involvement in meddling in electoral stuff, not least the collusion that's going on, or, or allegedly, um, or is it? Yes, it is, in the US. He's, he was on the show and he said this. We have no evidence that the Russians are actually involved in trying to undermine our democratic processes at the moment. We haven't. So why are uh, the security know, services uh, making right, that you know, precise warning? We don't warning. actually have that that evidence. But what we do have is plenty of evidence that the Russians are capable of doing that. So I think he's holding a position saying, whilst we haven't got the evidence that they actually are doing it, everyone knows full well that they can, they could if they wanted to. And they probably are, which as a normal human being is a bit dodgy. See, this one I think is an interesting example because, yeah, on the on the face of it, if these statements are taken in complete isolation, then I would agree this would be uh, an example of the uh, negative fallacy mm-hmm. in play. But I actually don't think this is a great example of that fallacy given a wider context when we know for a fact, for example, that uh, Russia has a, uh, a political, there is uh, a gain in a political agenda to sort of destabilise the, the kind of democracies around the world that uh, would otherwise have held them to account. And we know, mm-hmm. in fact, that they have been engaged in trying to destabilise, for example, the uh, the American election. So I think this is, uh, once you put this in the context of, uh, of, of uh, politics more generally, I think this is perhaps a case that I suspect there is evidence. I suspect mm-hmm. they have got evidence of it, but it's not the kind of evidence that you can declare on uh, national television to, yeah. to the world. And so a statement like this is to say, look, we know you're doing it, but we're not about to come out and say, this is how we know it. Because in order to say that, you know, you might be then compromising the methods of getting there, or it yeah. might not be the kind of uh, court level of evidence. So I think this isn't isn't a perfect example of the negative evidence once you put it in a wider context, but in isolation, it could be. Yeah, I agree, actually. I think, I think this, if he was using the last of evidence mm-hmm. to claim that that proved what he was trying to prove, then I think that would be a fair example. Yeah. But he's he is acknowledging the fact, or at least like Marsh said on on TV, he's acknowledging the fact they don't have evidence they can talk about. Right. But saying we still believe it. I don't. I don't think that's. And I think quite that that context that, and that context is also added to because Peston says, well, why are the security services saying? that very thing that they are so politically it's not very expedient for him to actually divulge that we do have evidence the security services are saying as much 
Um, but what so what Boris is doing is building a, a strong context within which the kind of evidence that they have leads them to think um, full well that they are actually involved. Does this lead to um, a kind of counter? Because I'm always interested in how do you counter these kind of fallacies and is there is an effective counter, therefore, to provide a strong context within which you're saying what you're saying? Well, I think part of it is looking at the uh, the, the prior plausibility. So I mm-hmm. think here the prior. So if the the claim, for example, when we looked at the Donald Trump one, the prior plausibility that there are millions of illegal votes that were cast for my opponent, and that's the only reason I lost the uh, the popular vote. Mm-hmm. The prior plausibility that is obviously incredibly low. The idea that there are millions uh, of uh, that these things haven't been detected, that they all voted yeah. against Hillary, that this was kind of a coordinated thing. There is enough. Uh, there are several different stages to that uh, to, to that operation all of which involve an additional level of complexity. Whereas we look at the prior plausibility of uh, Russian interference with uh, the democratic process in the UK, um, that would require them to have the technological capabilities, and we know they have that. It would require them to mm-hmm. have the political will, and we know they have that. It would require them to have the uh, the resources and the, the people power to pull it off, and we know they've got a big building called the Internet Research Agency that is filled with people doing exactly that. So in each stage, the prior plausibility uh, is, is there. So I think it's when it comes to an argument or a looking at the negative fallacy and saying, is this an example of the negative fallacy or is this not a good example? It's it's looking at those prior plausibilities. Mm. Uh, we also mm. have the additional context, of course, that Boris Johnson was uh, a major figure in the Leave campaign. And if he comes out and says, we know that Russia are mucking around with our uh, our votes in our elections, he yep. then opens up to saying, oh, like the one that <laughs> you won. <laughs> so I think yeah. that's the other yeah. thing is that he's in a bit of a bind there if he has yeah. got any evidence that... Uh, There's some motivated uh, reasoning going on definitely potentially yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> all right then okay well let's try uh the second example so this is from prime minister's christian's time from today it's the 23rd today isn't it 23rd of jan um so this is the exchange that happened today in um the house of commons and corbyn was asking a question directly of theresa may um, which said, does she is she going to buy into a customs union in her reframing of the deal that didn't get through the other week? Um, and in reply, she says this. Does he mean accepting the common external tariff? Does he mean accepting the common commercial policy? Does he mean accepting the union customs code? Does he mean accepting EU state aid rules? If he won't talk about it, there's only one conclusion. He hasn't got a clue. So there's my um, my position that I'm positing, is that um, the conclusion that she's leaping to from ignorance is that he, she is unaware of what he thinks. Therefore, he must have no clue whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable example there. And, and this is where the argument from ignorance overlaps with a different fallacy, mm-hmm. which is a false dilemma. Um, right. Essentially, she only has in her head or what she's presenting two options. Either he says what he thinks or he doesn't know anything. He doesn't have a clue. Yeah, um, there aren't. There isn't any other possibility. Yeah, exactly. His his refusal to engage with me must be because he doesn't have a position and doesn't know what he's talking about. Rather than that, uh, in that case, you're ruling out uh, a myriad of other possibilities as to why someone wouldn't want to talk to Theresa May. And frankly, I can mm. think of a dozen. <laughs> but uh, four or five. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
What's interesting, though, is that she doesn't answer his direct question. Uh, and what she does do is um, say, okay, when you say the customs union, do you mean all these other things? And then she, instead of saying, in which case, this is what my position is on all four of those particular parts of the customs union, instead of saying that, she alludes to the fact that he's not going to go through the door of number 10 to basically get the the Labour Party to vote for her deal. Therefore, he's, he's not talking about it. And that's because he hasn't got a clue. Well, he has. But what we don't know in her saying that is what clue she has about the customs union and, and much less how she's going to renegotiate that. Or, or does she actually mean to pull out of any of those bits of the customs union? She successfully diverts attention um, by doing the by a not answering the question and b doing the false dilemma and heaping uh, the argument from ignorance upon yeah. Corbyn and and avoiding the question and diverting attention is is the goal of many logical fallacies mm-hmm. and it's done yeah, quite yeah, effectively exactly. there because it yeah, just yeah. means she doesn't have to talk about that she can push doubt onto Corbyn instead. What did dismay me somewhat is that nobody on the opposition pointed it out and just. You kind of think, is is there another way of countering this stuff by just pointing it out, by just saying, Oi, <laughs> May, what you just said was this. That's just, a, you know, is there any uh, mileage to be had in doing that? I think I think in that kind of instance where it's based on something like a false dilemma, it's, it's based on um, we don't know, so here's my position. It is okay to point out that there might be other possibilities that haven't been considered. Mm. I think that's fair, mm. especially if you can think of specific ones that are plausible. Um, yeah. I think where it becomes more difficult is where you're saying that my position hasn't been proved to be false. Because in some cases, as we've talked about with informal logical fallacies, it raises the probability that yeah. your position is true if there isn't evidence against it. It is one of those where sometimes it's a little bit more nuanced. Mm. Well, I mean, this is obviously why they're informal logical fallacies uh, in that uh, the, the structure themselves doesn't uh, immediately determine that this is definitely a fallacy, um, but that it's an indicator that this is not that this is not necessarily a strong argument. In, in some cases, uh, it will be the case, but it's not always the case, or it's, it's often mm. not the case. Yeah, absolutely. And it's dangerous to make truth claims based on it. So we are halfway there. We, we are. are. It, it is. It is twenty twentieth uh, of January, two years ago. Trump was inaugurated. We are halfway through. Which you know what that means? It means we've only got two years to come up with another podcast idea. <laughs> 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 that was the Trump. That was maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. So in the fallacy in the wild, we like to talk about the fallacy of the week from a non-political perspective. And the first example that we've got is from a J.J. Uh, Abrams film produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, it's called Super 8, and it's set in a town where some weird stuff is going on. 20 microwaves, gone. 
from my inventory. Everywhere you look, things are going missing. We've got trains crashing, people vanishing, Belmont counties without power. You know what this feels like to me? This feels like a Russian invasion. Debbie, I don't think the Russians have anything to do with what's going on in town, but I am calling the curfew. Unless you can tell me who's been messing around with our stuff, I say it's the Soviets. So. So this is a kind of town hall meeting and, and a member of the town is is claiming to the police chief that if he can't tell her what's going on, mm. it's the Russians. This is set during the Cold War era. So mm. it's um, that that's her contention. She has an idea of what it's what it is. And the only way that she's going to be swayed from that is if they can tell her what it actually is. And any any level of doubt is kind of unacceptable in that scenario. Right, that's something we actually see uh, quite a lot. I spend a lot of time sort of talking to people who've got uh, uh, unusual views. And I did an interview uh, last night uh, that uh, isn't going to go out for for a while yet, but it was mm-hmm. with a chap who was uh, suggesting that uh, not only did Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing, uh, mm-hmm. but he admitted it in The Shining. Because uh, if you watch The Shining, there's so many references to the fact that the moon landing was fake. Um, for mm-hmm. example, uh, Danny, the young child in The Shining, is wearing, uh, wearing a jumper with the, with the uh, Apollo 11 rocket on and it says Apollo 11 and you say why uh, would the child in The Shining have an Apollo 11 uh, jumper on if it's not that Kubrick was faked give me a diff- give me another reason it can only be that Kubrick faked the moon landing that's the only explanation yeah. um, I don't know of any other explanation for it so that, so it must be that uh, yeah. which is a, a, again that kind of if unless you can tell me uh, another reason the only thing that, I, that could possibly be true is the thing that I've already got in my head so we see these uh, a huge amount. Uh, I actually had a, another conversation with a chap who was uh, uh, claiming a, a biblical start to the earth. And he actually had a, a great formulation of it, um, which, uh, first of all, he was, did the sort of the classic, uh, we don't know how life started, uh, so we can't rule out God. Because until we know how life started, uh, mm. we don't know that it wasn't God. So we don't know currently must have been God then. Um, but he mm, actually right. went further and said, science says that there's no evidence that there isn't a God. The Bible says that there, there is evidence that there is a God, and the Bible is that evidence. If science is providing no evidence and the Bible is providing some evidence, we have to follow the some evidence because the some evidence beats the no evidence. Oh, well, isn't that one of uh, Father Anselm's leaky buckets, which were the, his kind of seven or so uh, proofs of the existence of God? And one of them was his suggestion that a God that doesn't exist is less than a God that does exist. Yeah. That's know that's that's our, yeah. 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 And we know that our, our notion of God is that he is all powerful and perfect and therefore he must exist. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. some circular reasoning in there as well, but yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect circular reasoning. And sometimes this does sort of stray into circular reasoning as well. I mean, I saw this with, um, I talked to people who believe that nine uh, eleven was a, an inside job. And people will frequently say, we know, look how strong the cover-up is, that you think like mm. that nobody has spoken out about this. You, you, you bring that up as a, as a challenge to uh, 9-11 truthers. Well, how come there was nobody involved in all the cover-up uh, mm. that's been a whistleblower and actually spoke out and said, yeah, I was there when we decided, or I specifically did something along the way that I was told to do to bring it down. And they say, well, that's how good the cover-up is. That's how powerful the people in charge are, that they're able to keep everyone silent. So that isn't proof that, uh, that the idea is wrong. This is proof that the idea is actually right that there's that we hear no evidence (laughs) 
is proof itself of evidence. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, which I, yeah. I think is uh, is just a, a lovely uh, a lovely one. Uh, and one of uh, because this is something that comes up an awful lot with uh, conspiracy theorists. The you can't explain this, mm. therefore I'm right about it. Mm. Um, it comes up a, a huge amount, usually over very minor details as well, especially in a con- in, in a conspiracy where you have uh, you know so many different moving parts, so many different aspects, so many things that happen the way they happened because everything happens a way <laughs> everything has to happen some way but once uh, once an event has happened you can pick back over every one of those things that ever happened and say well why did it happen specifically this way and not a different way and one of my favorite examples um was i spoke to a chap many years ago who was uh, positing that uh, princess diana was killed uh, deliberately by mi5 uh, and it was uh, you know an assassination and what he said was if you t- if you look at the route that diana's car took from the hotel that she was staying in to the tunnel where she crashed, there were 22 CCTV cameras along that road. And when her car passed, not a single one of them had been pointing at the road at the moment the car went past. <laughs> he said, why would that be? You can't explain that, that. Give me some explanation other than somebody turned those cameras away. And in the moment, in the conversation, you absolutely can't do anything with that. <laughs> But because these details, they are, they are hysteric details, but they're not details that you know, exist in a vacuum, you can actually go away and check some of these things out. And I, I did look up that particular one because I thought, well, hang on, this is, what, 1997, I think it was, when Princess Diana died, mm, 27, right. uh, 22 yep. CCTV cameras in France. I know that CCTV cameras in the UK were, were quite widespread, but France have got very different privacy laws. And I don't think they had a widespread CCTV operation run by the government in 1997. So what were these 22 cameras? And when you look them up, they were cameras that were uh, privately owned, fitted on shops to uh, avoid uh, to, yeah. to you know uh, right. avoid break-ins. Yeah. So why were the cameras not pointing at the road? Well, why the hell would they be pointing at the pointing road? At they were the pointing at the shop doorway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, well, that's I think is probably because we've been brought up on a diet of. Uh, Jason Bourne movies and Bond movies for 50 years where it is perfectly, and even the Italian job, where it's perfectly possible to create that uh, kind of mayhem if there's a, mm. a power that is that is behind all that. So there is this notion that you can have a Mr. Big, a Blofeld, you know, a mastermind. So long yeah, as you that, think of everything and have unlimited power, then you can exactly, pull yeah, and you've got <laughs> yeah, access yeah. to absolutely every single computer system in the world. Of course, there is an author. Of course, somebody's in charge of it because otherwise, the universe is empty and meaningless, and that's a very <laughs> frightening prospect. Well, I, I think that's it, and, and I think it's also we're um, we're very much accustomed to the idea that huge, significant events must be driven by huge significant plans. Uh, the most famous woman in the world can't die randomly in a plane in a, in a car crash. Mm. The, two of the most iconic buildings in the world can't be taken down by a, a dozen people who uh, had spotted a, a major flaw in the, the security operations of, uh, of airlines. That can't be uh, the, the, the answer because it's too... Uh, in one case, mundane, and in another case, mm. terrifyingly random, <laughs> you know, ter- terrifyingly yep. exposed. There must be someone yep. in charge, and uh, things all happen for a reason, because, yeah, as you say, otherwise, uh, this is just a, a chaotic system that we're all somehow clinging to. Yeah, and we're, we're so good at seeing patterns. We're too good at seeing patterns. We see patterns mm. where they where they don't exist. And we're really bad 
at estimating probability. So, mm. th- so things that seem ridiculously unlikely or ridiculously coincidental actually happen all the time. Mm. And, and when it's a high profile thing, people kind of latch on to anything that seems odd about it because uh, yeah, yeah. they assume that can't possibly have just happened. So our final example is uh, from the very end of 12 Angry Men. And it's, uh, there's, there's 11 jurors now saying that the kid is not guilty and Lee J. Cobb is, is holding out and he's absolutely still convinced of, of the kid's guilt. And uh, here is what he yells at uh, Henry Fonda, juror number eight. You can't prove he didn't get to the door. Sure, you can take all the time hobbled around the room, but you can't prove it. Henry Fonda has spent most of the film kind of taking down, not always completely convincingly, <laughs> all of the, the points against the kid who's on trial. And one of them is that the uh, old man witness who claims that he saw the kid rushing out seconds after uh, the, the body hit the floor upstairs couldn't possibly have got to the door because he's an old man. He got a limp and there was a long way to his door and he, he couldn't have made it in time to see what he claims he saw. And, and Lee J. Cobb is holding on to the fact that you can't prove it, so therefore the kid's guilty. He's motivated to keep believing this because he's mm. prejudiced mm. against this particular kid and, and about, about kind of young people in general because of his relationship with his son. But because but he's so motivated, he's, he's so sure that he's right because he can't be proved wrong in yeah, this yeah. situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but isn't doesn't that come from the idea that in a court of law an accused person is presumed innocent until proven guilty well yeah i mean that's basically the thesis of the film is is henry fonda's character takes that to an extreme yeah. and, and says look if there's not just reasonable doubt but any doubt at all then we can't convict this kid and there is a presumption of innocence and and that's partly why when you have this this kind of absence of evidence thing mm. it gets confusing it gets complicated when you get into legal aspects mm. and mm. there's there's two aspects to this which is first of all juries these days because of csi and and various tv things and films assume that there will be more evidence available mm-hmm. right. or assume that there will always yeah, be evidence yeah. yeah um when sometimes there isn't they just haven't been able to find some kind of damning smoking gun um, but uh, they, yeah, so they expect to see more and they, and they might actually then give more weight to the idea that there isn't enough evidence. Yeah. Um, but also on the other side of it, the, this, this claim that, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, that really comes into it where you've looked genuinely in all the places that if this thing happened, you would expect to find evidence. You would expect mm. to find fingerprints or DNA or, or whatever. Mm. And if you've looked in all those places... And you've been careful about it and you've done it properly. Not finding that evidence is actually evidence that mm. that person wasn't there or wasn't involved. Or, and it, it's not proof, but mm. it, it certainly rises to the level of evidence. Yeah. Well, there's this, a thesis that I was reading by a guy called Michael Wren, which says arguments from ignorance and the presumption of ignorance. And he goes on to dispute that the argumentum ad ignorantium advanced inside the courtroom is per se not fallacious. So what he's saying is, so somebody else called Copy, C-O-P-I, Copy, Irving Copy, said that in a court of law, if there is what looks like an argumentum ad ignorantium, then it isn't a fallacy because it's in a court of law. And I guess it because it's under that 
umbrella of innocent until proven guilty. Um, and the, it makes interesting reading, but I'm not convinced by it. So he kind of goes through point by point and says, well, there's a difference between innocent and legally innocent. While in uh, logical fallacies, that often we talk about these as kind of uh, in terms of their form, uh, they need to kind of exist in uh, a logical kind of vacuum where mm. we're, we're examining the logic in itself. Uh, the innocent or not innocent uh, question in in law doesn't exist in a vacuum. And if you are if you don't put in the the bias towards uh, having more proof in order to to fall one side or the other, you end up uh, sending more innocent people to prison mm, over. Yeah. Of a, a very minor edge case uh, scenario, so I think that's why the burden of proof in, in a legal system is uh, at a set at a slightly different level, uh, and legal innocent and legally innocent are, are two different kind of concepts as a result, really. Absolutely, and I think that that's where it is useful in a court to to not see this as a fallacy is that yeah the, the whole basically legal system is set up in that if you don't have enough evidence, then legally that person is is innocent. That's the decision that you make. It is based on the absence of evidence. So, yeah, yeah in, in that sense, it's it's not fallacious. I think it's dangerous, slightly, to say that if anything looks like an, an argument from ignorance and it's happening in a court, it's not an it's not a fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody, as well as anybody. Yes, it's time for Fake News, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up, and Mark and Marsh have to figure out which one is fake news. I just need now, to tell um, you, Marsh, that I'm really very good at this game. In my, <laughs> okay. I've, I've adopted the Trump um, braggadocia in regard to this because I've lost all but two, I think. <laughs> it's, it's four, actually. So, oh, yeah, it you're 25%. So I decided oh, yeah, last is, episode... That I would just say I'm winning in a very oh, I way, see. and uh, and that would you know it would just rewrite history in a yeah it's working not, in a Ministry so of Truth kind of kind of way yeah okay I can get on board with that yeah so okay, bring so it we're on. gonna have to 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 protect the integrity of the competition we're gonna have to let Mark guess first because otherwise he might be swayed by uh, by what by you my, suggest my Mark. By having yeah, sure. somebody like Marsh, who is a, <laughs> you know, he's on, on on record as being a very reasoned and reasonable guy. <laughs> Can I just not have him as my lawyer, as it were, in this game? Just, <laughs> what, just, do you want him for advice? No, no, you have to do yeah. it all by yourself. Oh, and, and if you get the next two right, yeah. then you'll actually be at the level of random chance. Of random so. chance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm so. gonna, I'm the best, the best at random chance <laughs> ever. There, there is a theme. There's usually a okay. theme. Yeah. Uh, we, we like to keep it light here. So the theme this week is is human trafficking. <laughs> uh, it's, it's okay. It's actually not technical. I mean, they are all about human trafficking, but that yeah. wasn't the theme I chose. What I what I've realised is one of the ways that you can tell that Trump is making stuff up as he goes along, apart from the fact that his lips are moving, is that <laughs> he he often says he often adds in really quite specific information that is right. probably not relevant yes. and not something that actually he's been told by anyone, but it's, it makes it sound like he knows a little bit more than he does. And he, he says this is, this is what you Yeah, Yeah, he always does it in a way that uh, there is no way that specific information is possibly even true, but he adds it casually yeah. offhanded, like, oh, I know everything yeah. about this. I'm just going to yeah, yeah. throw out this detail. That is clearly bullshit, yeah. yeah. And so he's been trying with the, the shutdown and, and trying to get the wall, he's been trying to, to do extra fear-mongering mm. uh, about human trafficking mm -hmm. this week. 
And so these are some of the statements that he said. Statement number one. They get off the road and they drive out into the desert and they come on, they make a left turn. Usually it's a left, not a right. Most of them come out because in San Diego and in areas of California, we just finished brand new walls, beautiful walls, steel walls. So Mm -hmm. statement number two. They work in groups, these traffickers. They call themselves coyotes, usually three of them working together, sometimes four, but usually three. And they do very bad stuff. You should see some of the things. I don't even want to tell you. We have to stop them. Or statement number Mm -hmm. three, they just go out and where there's no fencing or walls of any kind, they just make a left into the United States and they come in and they have women tied up. They have tape over their mouths, electrical tape, usually blue tape as they call it. It's powerful stuff. Not good. Blue tape as they call it. We all call (laughs) it blue tape. Electrical tape, you can get blue electrical tape. I call (laughs) it blue tape. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that powerful, but yeah. So. Okay. You see, just as Trump does, I know for one of these, you've bunged in those convincing tiny little details. See, it's no good actually having worked out the game. hasn't helped me at all, (laughs) ever, historically. Oh, God. So the the coyotes thing, yeah, see, I like... Okay, they just go out. There's no fencing or walls of any kind. They just make a left into the United States. Really? Okay. Right. Uh, mm, I See, I buy the blue tape Trump thing and beautiful walls. <sighs> I think number two is the one that you made up. Okay. Marsh? What do you reckon, Marsh? So... I think I think number two is uh, a legitimate quote. Um, partly because I think the detail of the coyotes uh, is, uh, is is pretty strong. Um, but I think the the thing that gives it away is a, a Trump thing for me. There's two little bits. Uh, when he says sometimes four, but usually three, that's the classic type of uh, Trump thing where he's uh, he's uh, equivocating over a minor detail or something. Yeah. Uh, to to show that oh I I know a range of things about this so I think that's a, yeah, a pretty yeah. strong version of it similar when he said another very very Trump thing is to do the I know this thing you don't even want to know what I know I'm not even going to tell you what I know because that's just a a, a great uh, a really transparent cover for I don't actually know this thing but I'm going to try and bluff my way through right. so I'm pretty sh- certain uh, number two is uh, is uh, true oh, okay. uh, I think number three I'm going to go on number three is also true um, partly because I think uh, the the left in the United States is a tell it's in it's in one and three um, but I yeah. think when it appears in one I think uh, I think yeah Jim's monkeyed with that to right. do the left <laughs> not a right and I think that's, okay, that's picking yeah, up yeah. on the sometimes three not uh, four not three um, so I think number one is fake and I think number three is uh, is legitimate the blue tape thing for example is a, is a classic kind of Trump detail in, in my mind so I'm going to put my right. nickel down on number one right okay and I'm going for two so so Marsh thinks number one is fake news Mm-hmm. Mark thinks number two is fake news. So you yeah. both think number three is real. Yeah. Yes. So we'll start there. And number three is real. They just go out and where there's no fencing or walls of any kind, they just make a left into the United States and they come in and they have women tied up. They have tape over their mouths, electrical tape, usually blue tape, as they call it. It's powerful stuff. Not good. <laughs> As the saying goes, <laughs> blue tape. Yeah. yeah, blue tape, as they call it. 
So that's true. He did say that. Oh, it's not he true. Just but he did a, say it. <laughs> yeah, did say it. just just a random collection of stuff, isn't it? Oh my god. <laughs> the weird thing about this is this idea of the 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 guys having women tied up and with tape mm. over their mouths. Mm. He's mentioned this about seven or eight times since about the 4th of January. Right. It's completely made up. Mm. Ashley Hubner, Associate Director of Legal Services at the National Immigrant Justice Centre, says, I think his statements are completely divorced from reality. That's not a fact <laughs> pattern we see. Um, the the assistant executive director of American Gateways, a Texas-based immigration legal services non-profit, said, I have no idea the roots of this. I haven't seen a case like that. The Washington Post and, and Toronto Star asked about 10 kind of experts who actually work with, you know, human trafficking involved in that area around the border. They do not know what this is based on. This is not something that is happening. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's so another just, one of his dreams, isn't it? Yeah. He's just, He's just completely built this out of whole cloth wow. and decided it happens. Wow. It's and mad. then made it true in his own mind by repeating it several times. Yeah. And adding extra like detail. Is it that he's invented, though, or is it much more likely that he's found that on Breitbart or, or Fox News or, or some yeah, other incredibly possible. awful yeah. right-wing <laughs> outlet? <laughs> but he obviously ha he has to embellish. So number three was real. Yeah. Number two, Mark, you think, is fake news. I do. And number two yes. is yes. fake news. Hey, oh, you're correct. No, nice. <laughs> I made that one up. Wow! Wow! Yay! So. We beat Marsh. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, <laughs> well done. I did. Yeah. Well, no, you, well, you did. Yeah, yeah. That, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get called coyotes. I don't know if they call themselves that. As right. far as I know, they don't work in groups. I've no idea. So I just made that up. Ah, uh, okay. Nice. <laughs> wow. Which means that number one is yep. a real quote. Uh, Blimey! They get off the road. And they drive out into the desert and they come on, they make a left turn. Usually it's a left, not a right. Most of them come out because in San Diego and in areas of California, we just finished brand new walls, beautiful walls, steel walls. Why, why would it usually be a left? Is that true? Has well, he... have they got, oh no, they haven't, they haven't built new walls. So they had, there is, no. yeah, there's, there's some fencing, some steel fencing at, uh, in San Diego area, okay. not, not uh, which hasn't, no, and it's, it's fencing that was um, started under Obama. And yeah. <laughs> not having a significant impact on no. immigration in that area. So. No. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you think when Trump was growing up, his dad sent, said to him, you can't go through these walls. And actually, it's just a picket fence at the end of the thing. So he's always conflated fences with walls ever since. I mean, you're assuming that uh, Donald Trump's dad ever spoke to him. And I think nothing about <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump's demeanor or behavior suggests that's the case. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Brilliant. So, Mark, yeah, having got that one correct. You're two in a row. This oh is my insane. god! There you go. See, <laughs> um, I hate to say, but embracing the Trumpism is, <laughs> you know, is proving to be a you know, no. I'm going to go and wash my mouth out with soap for even <laughs> saying that. So that, that takes you up to 29%. Yes. So you're getting so close to if you just randomly picked one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, where's the fun in that? <laughs> so podcast listeners, I need your help to fool Mark. If you think that you can make up a convincing fake Trump quote, then share this episode on Twitter. Include your quote in the hashtag fallacious Trump. I'll pick the best one and you'll be podcast famous. Now, 
And it's time for the part of the show that this week, at least, is called Marsh is Not a Logical Fallacy, because we're talking to our guest. Marsh, tell us a bit about the work that you do at the Good Thinking Society. Oh, blimey. So uh, where to start? Well, Good Thinking Society is uh, a charity uh, that was set up by the science writer Simon Singh. And uh, the idea of the charity is we're there to uh, encourage curiosity, to uh, promote science and to uh, investigate and uh, discourage and expose pseudoscience. Uh, so occasionally that will mean uh, I have to go and uh, have an alternative health treatment uh, done to me so I can kind of see what, uh, what what they say to people or go along and see a psychic or uh, attend uh, alternative uh, events. Um, or uh, sometimes it means that I uh, will uh, try and investigate uh, the, the evidence behind specific claims and talk to the media, talk to regulators, talk occasionally even to the police uh, if the, the claims are particularly dangerous. Uh, and then another part of what I do is uh, I travel around the country telling people about the the work of scepticism and telling people about some of the stuff that we do, we've been doing. So um, specifically, we've uh, we were the first organisation, uh, including the NHS. So the, the NHS didn't know mm. the time uh, to figure out how much money the UK was spending on homeopathy, so remedies that uh, even the government admitted were completely ineffective because, of course, they are. There's nothing in a homeopathic remedy. Um, we were the. It was actually my freedom of information request that figured out that we were that the UK was spending wow. about five million pounds a year on homeopathy um which whenever you see those figures in the in the press it's actually based off the the emails that i the hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of emails that i sent and received for with uh, uh local councils and uh, nhs trusts all around the country um and once we knew it was five million pounds i was then able to to look at uh who was funding it which uh, which nhs trusts were funding it and when the contract decisions were up and, and how we could uh start to challenge that and we were almost at a place now where homeopathy is completely eradicated from the nhs a couple of little bits still hanging on but the vast majority of it is gone as a, as a result of the work that uh, that I'm doing with Good wow. Thinking. So, yeah, that's the type of stuff we do there. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that you've completely taken down single-handedly homeopathy in the UK. That's reasonable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, that's absolutely yeah. reasonable to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the, the podcast that went out, I think it was New Year, um, where it talked about there was new legislation that was being put in place, the way that non-mainstream medicine is legislated policed you know have you i think you've you've actually ha- that's actually happened as a result of the work of the good thinking society yeah, it is. So it's it's not quite a change in uh, in legislation so much as a clarification of mm. um, of uh, charity guidelines is one of the mm. one of the areas that we were looking at. So, uh, for example, if you take a look at um, uh, we, we looked at uh, the the rules by which an organisation can be a charity, and, and one of the oh, okay. fundamental principles is that uh, to be a charity, you have to do something in the public good. You have to be working to the public benefit, uh, and yet mm. there were significant numbers of organizations whose specific purpose was the promotion of alternative medicine, uh, mm-hmm. including some charities that existed specifically for the promotion of uh, homeopathic remedies for uh, victims of uh, HIV and rape uh, in Botswana specifically. Um, so that wow. if your wow. organization exists to give uh, vulnerable people um, a sugar pill and tell them it's medicine, that can't possibly be in the public benefit. Uh, and yet when complaints were made about these charities, the Charity Commission uh, didn't do anything about it. So uh, we actually uh, pushed the Charity Commission to, to actually take action. And as a result of that, they reviewed all of their guidelines on uh, and what a charity can and can't do uh, and tightened them up an awful lot. And now we're, so now we're in the position of, uh, of uh, looking at these new guidelines, which 
are much, much better in, in, a, in a large number of ways and having them uh, reapplied to existing charities to say, you've just gone through this two-year process, the Charity Commission, of uh, of rewriting these guidelines, re-examining them, looking at all the evidence behind uh, all the, the, the charities, asking all the charities to submit uh, their, their reasoning behind uh, what a, their understanding of what a guideline should and shouldn't say in this area. And you've come up with the conclusion that, uh, that uh, charities who promote alternative medicine uh, aren't allowed to say it's alternative. You can't go against the recommendations of doctors. You can only say it's kind of uh, relieving the symptoms like uh, nausea or making people feel comfortable. You can't say it's got to actually do anything. Um, they've got these guidelines and now it's a case of, uh, of having them actually apply them to their existing charities. And that's, that's what we're on with. But it's, it should theoretically, uh, really tighten up, uh, the area of all these charities because when people see something as a charity, they assume that what that, uh, organization is doing, mm. um, must be effective. It must be legitimate. And, uh, people put their faith in charities for that reason. So it's, it's kind of, uh, to some degree, a, a betrayal or a, a, an undermining of that public trust. Uh, to allow organisations that are doing things that are against the public benefit to continue, and that's what we're what we're trying to stop. And I think we, we're starting to make some headway there significantly. Yeah, excellent. And this is a full time thing for you, isn't it? You're, you're a full time sceptic. Yes, I, I think I'm actually technically the UK's only full time sceptical investigator. Uh, is as far as I can tell, uh, I think I think that's what I am. And uh, what I always tell people when I give talks around uh, around the country and occasionally around the world uh, is that I, I tell people that means that sometimes part of my job is to go around the country uh, encouraging groups of strangers to doubt stuff. Uh, and whenever I tell someone that's my job, there's always someone looks at me as if to say, that's not really a proper job, is it? Uh, and to those people, I'd say, that's how good I am at making you doubt stuff, that you even doubt the validity of my uh, my chosen career. Yeah. What can we do, I think, because that's something we're trying to do as well, is to, to reach people who aren't already critical thinking you know, see themselves as sceptics. Obviously, there's a certain level of preaching to the choir for for all of the kind of people in the sceptical community because we're all looking at each other's stuff. But um, what can we do to reach out to people who don't naturally kind of put themselves in that box? Well, I think there's a couple of things really, and it is difficult, but I think uh, one of the things is uh, to understand uh, what the effect of our language actually uh, is. So it's very uh, tempting and, 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 you know, a lot of fun uh, as a skeptic to, to say, well, uh, people who believe in psychics, well, they're idiots, aren't they? And these people are grief vampires, the psychics who are preying on, on grief and, you know, alternative medicine. Well, that's all con men, isn't it? And gullible people and, and this kind of language that people, I think, might feel quite cathartic if you're if you're often surrounded by people that uh, that believe in that kind of stuff um but if you're reflective of what somebody who doesn't really know either way or isn't hugely invested either way or even might be a believer in those things uh, what they'll think when they hear that kind of language they'll think well this skeptic's awful this person is very condescending and it, it will sort of rebuff people. So I think one of the useful things, if we want to try and get people on board, is to um, is to remember the humanity, the people that we disagree with, uh, and to uh, remember that what we care about is trying to uh, encourage more critical thinking. Uh, and that might sometimes mean that we make the decision to uh, to couch our words in a slightly different way or we, we, we think about how we communicate. But I think it's, uh, it's certainly something for the greater good. 
Um, and I think it also involves um, avoiding an overuse of uh, of in group terminology. So if you if we talk in our own very specific language, uh, that can be a quite a, a tricky thing. Uh, and I see that occasionally with online arguments where people uh, ask, you know, this is the the fallacious Trump uh, podcast, so we'll talk logical fallacies for a second. Um, I see it where people are engaging with people they disagree with, um, and when that person they disagree with uh, makes a fallacious argument, I see people saying, ah. That's an argument from uh, from yeah, it's an argument ad populum or an argument mm-hmm. uh, ad, ad uh, you know, ignorance, um, and that's where they stop. Now, if you're somebody who isn't uh, spending all their time uh, understanding the uh, nuances of uh, informal logical fallacies, uh, you don't know what that term means, and so it it doesn't help you in a in a it doesn't help uh, someone who is a, a critical thinker in a conversation uh, mm. reach that person. It just looks kind of uh, exclusionary. So. What I always kind of suggest to people is, by all means, highlight to someone when an argument that they've made uh, is you know, logically flawed and logically inconsistent. But your roller deck of logical fallacies isn't uh, a trump card that you play in mm. conversation mm. to win the argument. Instead, what it exactly, should be yeah. is... It should be the label on the drawers of examples that you have in your brain. So when someone makes an argument, uh, you know, a, a circular reasoning argument, you shouldn't go, well, that's just circular reasoning. You should go, okay, I know of uh, that, that argument was just circular reasoning. What examples do I have of circular reasoning that I can use to explain why circular reasoning is a bad thing? I'll go to my circular reasoning labeled drawer and pull out one of those examples. And so when someone says an argument, gives you an argument that's circular reasoning, you say, well, that doesn't work because think, for example, if I was to tell you this, you say, well, that doesn't work for these reasons. And your argument is based on a very similar example. So mm-hmm. we should be looking to see how we can use knowledge of critical thinking and knowledge of uh, you know, l- logical arguments to uh, explain to people why arguments are wrong rather than just to shout the, the title of the, the mistake mm-hmm. that they made mm-hmm. and, and walk away like we, uh, like we won because, uh, yeah, we really didn't. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When you kind of confront, I guess, um, people's thinking or you take various organisations like the Charities Commission to task, what is their reaction? The Charity Commission, I, I suspect, that I, I didn't meet with them in person, but um, I would imagine they know that they've got a lot of other things to do. And so maybe the stuff we were raising was going to cause them more headaches rather than fewer. Um, I mean, we were... Uh, in my opinion, completely correct in terms of charity law and correct in terms of the moral argument about whether a uh, a charity that offers no public benefits should allowed to continue co- to, should be allowed to continue calling itself a charity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I suspect they were probably a lot less uh, the charity commission probably a lot less welcoming to our arguments because they recognised that if they were to agree with us, it would be a whole slew of other work to do mm-hmm. at a time when there were lots of other charities doing things that uh, that weren't anything to do with scepticism. That were you know, kids uh, club organisation, a kids charity that was under undergoing a lot of investigations oh, yes, and things. So yeah, yeah. So that they, they probably weren't as welcoming. Um, occasionally, newspapers will publish uh, an article that is uh, deeply problematic, an advertorial for a chiropractor saying that uh, all your uh, health wars can be cured by uh, mm-hmm. by chiropractic. Uh, and we'll get in touch with the editor of the newspaper and say, did you know that what you're promoting is actually this? Mm-hmm. And often they'll say... Oh, we had no idea about that. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We'll, we'll pull this article, uh, because it's not, doesn't meet the standards of this newspaper after all. This is normally local papers rather than national yeah. papers. Yeah. Uh, national papers will normally offer us a, uh, a right to reply or, or, or similar. Mm. Um, so, so there are people who you'd imagine, uh, would be not receptive to our message who are actually quite receptive mm. to it, partly because of the way that we go about approaching them and, uh, and, and the way we go about understanding them. And mm. I think, 
in, if we were to, to see this story go up in a local paper and we tweet pu- publicly, what the hell is this paper doing? It's uh, putting its mm-hmm. readers at risk. They're, this is dangerous. They're mm. irresponsible. This is utterly ridiculous. This is what you get from the mainstream media. This is pathetic. Um, I don't think they would have had any, they wouldn't have felt obliged or felt willing to, to listen to us and to do anything. But instead, because we try and engage at a, a professional level and try and understand what factors might have led there and what pressures might have led there, um, people can actually be quite, uh, uh, yeah, quite receptive to what we're trying to do Mm. and that level of kind of trying to respectfully engage with different viewpoints and stuff is something that you do on your podcast be reasonable yeah which if anyone who is listening to this doesn't already listen to be reasonable they absolutely must what have you been doing with your lives (laughs) it's a masterclass in talking to people that you disagree with and who have some quite in some cases really strange views Mm. it must be infuriating to do yeah, less so than you think, partly for a couple of reasons, really. Um, I think one is that I, I genuinely am interested in what the person is telling me. And I'm genuinely interested in, in how they got to the, the position that they're at and what evidence supports it. Um, so I know that if I, as, as some of my listeners want me to do, or some of my listeners themselves want to do, just shout at this person that you're completely mm. wrong, you know, mm. that your idea is nonsense or in some cases, what you're saying is is deeply bigoted, deeply offensive, you know, deeply dangerous, and that that's the case with some of the people I've uh, I've interviewed. Not all, but but there are, there's a, a non-zero number of people who hold beliefs that I consider to be very dangerous and deeply bigoted. Um, if I were to shout at them and or, or even to start telling them off and sp- speaking my mind and telling them what's right, um, this wouldn't be a conversation about what they believe. It would be a conversation where I'm telling them why they're wrong. Mm. And most of my listeners know how to do that. Most of my listeners know how to say to someone who thinks the world is 6,000 years old, you're wrong, that's silly, there's lots of evidence. What they might not know is if you actually hear out for about an hour someone explaining why they believe that and and you know putting in little checks and little challenges here and there but but mostly trying to have a civil discussion and try to understand as much as possible what they say, um, you might get to the arguments that they don't normally trot out. And so you might actually hear something that you've not heard uh, a creationist say before, or you might hear um, what's actually going on that led them to those to those positions. Uh, so sometimes when you hear, I, I interviewed somebody who uh, would pick at abortion clinics, and every single person I almost guarantee who's ever engaged with this chap um, has shouted at him that he's a Bible thumping bigot who just only cares about the Bible. And they probably had verses from the Bible that they could read out to him to tell him why he's wrong. But rather than do that, I asked him why he did it. And I asked him, you know, if this is biblically based and if so, what uh, what passages of scripture support a, a biblical view of, uh, you know, pro-life and anti-abortion? And I expect him to, to trot some out because this is a guy who pickets four different abortion clinics in four different cities. Um, and because I actually asked him, where where in the Bible do you turn to to, to support your, your point of view? And could you tell me a bit more about that? Um, I thought he'd trot out these uh, these Bible passages and instead there was about 30 seconds or a minute of him looking for a piece of paper that his brother had written down some references that he should check out that do talk about abortion uh, but I can't and he couldn't find the piece of paper he said I'm, I'm really sorry I just can't find that anywhere um, but it was it was written on there and I meant to I meant to, to look at it and so I thought well maybe it's not because he's a biblical literalist uh, a Bible first <laughs> person here maybe there's something else going on that's led him to this position so we started talking about gender roles and uh, his views of, of sexual politics and where we kind of got to was that he actually had some very 
confused, in my opinion, views uh, about uh, the roles of men and women in the world and uh, mm. how he believed that women are intentionally trying to trap men into relationships by getting pregnant and this kind of stuff. And those are obviously also fallacious arguments and also arguments mm. that uh, speak to, from a, a kind of uh, prejudice. Um, but they aren't the prejudices that I would have assumed had I gone in there knowing that this is a guy from a Christian organisation who's against abortion. So I wouldn't. I would have been batting against a completely uh, false facade of uh, what his prejudices actually were. Even if he thought, you know, that even if he didn't realise that his real reasoning was this sexual gender uh, politics mix-up. Uh, uh, or the politics confusion and and uh, and, and anxiety, um, I would just would have not got to any of that had I just told him he was a Bible thumping Christian bigot uh, and left it at that. So that's part of the reason that I that I uh, don't get too frustrated because I'm always looking to find a way of of uh, getting through the, the the cracks a little bit and getting to what's underneath if I can. Um, and then the interviews that go spectacularly uh or into into spectacularly odd places or where the interviewer is uh, either horrendously offensive uh or is uh horrendously aggressive and patronizing condescending to me um those are the ones that, that my listeners often feel that i i should shout back at them mm. um but I just listen to that going, God, my listeners are going to have fun with this one. <laughs> you know, so I, I know that if somebody's being condescending and patronizing to me on my show, I don't have to dismantle that because my listeners know what the show is and what the show is doing. So they, I know for a fact that my listeners will hear that. They'll hear that this person is not putting forward, uh, their, their point of view based on evidence and logic and reason. They're trying to bluster their way through, uh, with kind of bravado or, 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 or uh, aggression or other kind of uh, you know, rhetoric and condescension. And, and my listeners are savvy enough to get that. So I, I don't need to do that. I can kind of go in other places with that. So yeah, I, I kind of have have fun with it, uh, even the ones that are that are awful. There's, there's a few of them that do get under my skin or in, in a way that make me feel unsure about uh, about publishing the episode and uh, <laughs> afterwards. But um, by and large, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm normally pretty pretty sanguine uh about the way the show goes yeah i think what your show does is actually kind of model a way of communicating that isn't just about looking at the world through you through your own point of view but advocates mm. that communicating is more about listening to what the other where the other person is coming from so it's understanding somebody else's point of view and in the process of doing that it opens up the possibility of them expressing something different and yeah. you understanding where they're coming from and equally them understanding what your viewpoint is um so i think that you know the the be reasonable podcast is actually a a kind of a, a great example of a way to just communicate better not just about these kind of issues but just uh, advocating uh, a new and better way of communicating well i i appreciate that well marsh where can our listeners find out more about you and hear more of your uh, well you can find out about the work i'm doing with the charity uh, good thinking if you go to goodthinkingsociety.org and there's pages there that explain all of our different projects and the various things that we're uh, we're up to um, if you want to hear my podcasts, I've got two. Uh, there's one called Be Reasonable, which is my interview show where I talk to those people that I disagree with. And uh, that's all up on iTunes and all the places that you get your podcasts from. Uh, and I've got another show called uh, Skeptics with a K, which is uh, a three-way discussion uh, with two of my colleagues at Merseyside Skeptic Society, where we'll take a, a particular
particular news story that we found and or, a, or a, an idea that we found and dig into it skeptically. And so that's skeptics with a K. And again, that's kind of everyone. I'm sad that, that we didn't get out. time to really talk about the, the skeptics with a K because I'm a big fan of that as well. So yeah, I very much recommend that our listeners go over there and check that out too if they haven't already. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, my, my co-host on there, Mike and uh, Alice, are, are, are incredible, incredibly smart, uh, diligent researchers who come up with uh, really interesting takes and really sort of detailed takes on things. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're very skilled at, uh, at taking stuff apart and explaining it. So, yeah, that's, they're, they're a pleasure to work with. Excellent. Thanks very much, Marsh. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And finally, some things we really don't have time to talk about. We're in day 33 of the partial government shutdown and the polls aren't looking good for Trump. According to Politico, Trump's disapproval rating is now at a record low of 57%. Meanwhile, only 31% of Americans are confident that Russia doesn't have compromising information on Trump. But the part of the poll I find most interesting is a question where they asked about general favourability of Donald Trump. And 40% had favourable feelings towards him. 55% had unfavourable feelings towards him. 4% had heard of him but have no opinion. And 2%, which is 34 people, had never heard of Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't, wow. How is that possible? Was it, 30, this was conducted in America, yeah? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is people with access to presumably phones or internet because they well, took part in a, take in part a political poll. poll. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't <laughs> understand that. In a couple of deleted scenes from the family tit-for-tat psychodrama, the War of the Roses movie, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi wrote to Trump, saying because of security concerns, he would have to wait until the government reopens before he can deliver the State of Union address. Alternatively, twisting the knife, he could choose to submit his speech in writing, she said. Yeah, right. So he in turn cancelled her access to military transport to fly a group of lawmakers to Afghanistan to visit American troops there. Of course, in the process, he unwittingly, how else does he do things, blew the security cover, significantly increasing danger to the lawmakers, the troops and other government officials supporting the trip, which has been postponed indefinitely. Yeah, way to get everyone on your side, Donald. <laughs> BuzzFeed News reported that Michael Cohen told the special counsel's office that Trump personally told him to lie to Congress about Trump Tower Moscow. After several hours of reporters saying just how damn impeachable this is, Mueller's office released a rare statement saying that the BuzzFeed story was not accurate, without clarifying which bits they disagreed with. BuzzFeed stands by their story, so all we can do while we wait for the truth to come out is take a quiz to find out what kind of pasta we are. I'm Fusilli. Oh yeah, I'm Conchiglietta. In an interview to help clear up the situation surrounding the BuzzFeed News report that Trump instructed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress, Rudy Giuliani told The New Yorker he believed that the report was incorrect because, and I quote, I've been through all the tapes, I've been through all the texts, I've been through all the emails, and I knew none existed. Then adding, oh, I shouldn't have said tapes, uh, there were no texts, there were no emails, and the president never told him to lie. No tapes, well, I've listened to tapes, but none of them concern this. With help like this, who needs colluders? In 2014, Michael Cohen hired an IT firm called Redfinch Solutions to rig online polls, including a CNBC poll to identify the top 100 business leaders in the US. Despite writing a script which voted repeatedly for Trump, <laughs> the Donald didn't even make the top 100. <laughs> Cohen used the firm again to set up a Twitter account called Women for Cohen, which tweeted exclusively about how great and sexy Cohen is. 
I think that's the best part of this story. But it might be that when the owner of Redfinch met Cohen in Trump Tower to collect the $50,000 fee, he was handed a blue Walmart bag containing $12,000 and a boxing glove that Cohen claimed had been worn by a Brazilian MMA fighter. Despite being the chief denigrator of the media as horrible fake news merchants, Trump's own Instagram account has photoshopped a picture of him from his own Facebook account. His right shoulder's been slimmed down, his face is looking thinner, he's even got a haircut, well, a digital one anyway, and Trump's fingers have been made slightly longer. Seriously. Well, if you can't beat them... And you know what, Donnie, you can't. Remember those goalposts that Rudy Giuliani likes to move around oh, about yes. who colluded and whether collusion is a crime? Well, Rudy fired them into orbit this week when he claimed this in an interview with Chris Cuomo. I never said there was no collusion between the campaign or between people in the campaign. I have no idea if there, I have not. I said the president of the United States. He went on to claim that Trump had never said that there was no collusion between the campaign and Russia as well. So basically their target audience at this stage is that guy from Memento. <laughs> <laughs> Who's actually got it, got no collusion tattooed on his chest in mirror writing. Yeah. And of course, we have accepted the invitation, all three of us, to dine at the White House. After all, there's a Trump hotel over the road who can do the catering because the Oval Office catering staff are furloughed. It'll be great. I'm looking at the menu right now. Well, what's on offer? 300, no, wait, 1,000 hamburgers and then smocked salmon washed down with kofi fee. Oh, well, the lukewarm nature of the food will be, of course, offset by the warmth of the president's integrity, humility and self-effacement. Yeah, right, and monkeys fly out of my butt. A thousand monkeys paid for by me. <laughs> I think the, the fast food hamburgers going cold, served on silver trays with kind of platters of McDonald's dip packets served <laughs> by candlelight is such a brilliant metaphor for the Trump yeah. presidency. Yeah, yeah. So that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode. I want to take this opportunity to say thank you so much to Marsh for joining us. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure to have you on the show. Always oh, a pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And again, go over and check out Marsh's podcasts. They really, really are worth listening to. It's one of my favourite podcasts. If you hear Trump say something stupid and wonder if it's a fallacy, you can find us on Twitter at Fallacious Trump or email us on pod at fallaciousTrump.com. And if you think we've used the fallacy ourselves, let us know. And if you've had a good time, please give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ftrump, just like our newest patron, Bahul, who's, yeah, thank you very much for signing up. It's great. You get all sorts of free stuff and, and, and everything and extended episodes and, oh, and including our show, uh, which is a chapter by chapter breakdown of Fear Trump in the White House. So thanks, Bahul. Brilliant. And you can connect with us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fallacious Trump, where we'll post some links to some of the stuff we've talked about. And all music is by The Outbursts and was used with permission. So until next time on Fallacious Trump, we'll leave the last word to the Donald. That's right. Go home to mommy. Bye. Bye.